This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. Go ahead and make your way back in and we will get started. So a couple announcements. Uh, Tonight we are having a meal again uh, downstairs. Yes, and tonight, hold your applause, Kyle, is we are back to Yum Bowl Sunday, right? It's a family favorite around here. Give Brenna a big hug uh, over the Yum Bowls. We will also have a meal next week. Um, I will not, I'll leave it uh, until next week to, for you to discover what that meal is. But uh, Brenna would like you to take, uh, there's a bunch of chicken carcasses, you know, for once you make that stock or whatever that you make with those things. And she would like you to take it home. So please, if you want to make soup, um, please take some of those home. They're down in the kitchen this evening. One other announcement is... Um, Stuart Egan is doing a theology and film gathering once a month. Last month, they on September 28th, they watched the film Look and See, um, a portrait of Wendell Berry, one of my favorites of this year. And then on October 26th, so in a couple weeks, will be The New World by Terrence Malick. Um, this, these times are times together to watch the film and then have Stuart will lead a time of discussion on the film. Uh, and all of them kind of follow the, the theme that we're running with as a community of learning uh, presence and place and those kinds of things. So those will be the topics of the discussions. Um, mark your calendar. It will be here. Um, and timing is Stuart in this room. I think it's around 6 o'clock, but you'll have to ask Stuart about that exactly. So those are the two announcements. Um, We are going, I'm going to have Lahela come up here in just a second and lead us in our two readings. We're going to continue on with uh, going through the Apostles' Creed together, and tonight we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. So Lahela is going to come up and do our readings, and then we'll get into the Word together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Tonight's passage is from Acts chapter 2, and it's verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. 
All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we get to the part of this creed right now. If you haven't noticed um, to this point, the creed is divided up into three major categories. For the first couple of weeks, we talked about God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So we focused on characteristics of, of creator God. And then we moved on to where we've been ever since. The bulk of the creed is we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived. And it goes on and on about this person of Jesus. And now we get to the third person of the Trinity, the third member, and we get a really robust section on the Holy Spirit. The creed says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, period. Moving on, right? <clears throat> and for good Pentecostals, this is a point of deep frustration. Why does the Spirit get so much shaft? Um, well, we're not going to go into that, but um, we are going to focus maybe on a little bit more hopeful posture on this, the mystery tonight of the Holy Spirit. Who is the person of the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit up to in the world that we live in, and how can we join in and participate in that? I'm actually really excited about this conversation. To dive into this question, who is the Holy Spirit, or what is the Holy Spirit up to in our world, I want to ponder... Um, this random question, or this, this concept of wind. Have you ever thought about wind, like, really in detail? Imagine if you could, for a second, just try and go to this place, that you had never experienced wind in your life. You'd never experienced the feeling of wind, you've never experienced the sound of wind, you've never seen the effects of wind. We moved along in our life with complete and utter stillness everywhere. It didn't exist. And then you are outside one day, and you feel whew, something pass you by. You feel it on your skin. You see the trees move. You hear the sound of the wind, but you can't see it. What would that do to you? That would mess with my head a little bit. I'd probably have a hard time going to sleep at night. Now, wind is something that we experience from the moment that we are born. It is commonplace. We don't question wind. We've never seen it. We've just seen the effects of it. We don't question wind, though. It's just something that 
happens in our life. Now, I want to ask a peculiar question. How many of us like wind? Do you like wind? Okay, so we like wind. Now, I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to like put you, uh, throw you under the bus or anything, but for those who raise their hand and say, yes, I like wind, chances are, I'm just going out on a limb right here, that you've never had a house or your country or anything destroyed by a hurricane. Is that correct? Right? And those of us who have experienced those things, the forces, the mighty power of wind, might answer that question a little bit differently, right? So wind could be one thing to one person and something completely else to somebody else. When I was preparing this sermon, I do so much better in preparation if I'm outside. If I'm inside trying to prepare, I'm like just cut off from the world. I don't know why that is, but probably because God created us to be outside beings. But anyways, so I'm walking along the Columbia River, and I'm thinking about this concept of the Spirit, and I'm thinking about wind. We'll get to why here in just a second. And as I'm walking along the river, I see this sailboat out in the distance, right? And the sail is open, and the boat is moving along. That person in that sailboat is trying to get from one point to another, and wind is the, the necessary component to move his vessel or her vessel along on the river. Wind is the friend of a sailboat can't be too windy because that gets into dangerous situations, but the perfect amount of wind moves that sailboat along. Now, if right next to that sailboat was a rowing team trying to get in the, to the exact same destination as that sailboat, wind now all of a sudden is not the friend of the rower that is going against the wind. It is if it's going with the wind, but not against the wind. So the rowers who are trying to row the boat are saying, ah, won't this wind go away, right? Let me give another example. Several weeks ago, we talked about, uh, it, it was at Easter, actually. I was preaching about resurrection, and I used this analogy of dust storms in the Sahara Desert. Who is there for that sermon? Okay. For those of you who weren't, I'll retell it just briefly. There is... Uh, Scholars and, and um, people who study the earth, what are they called, those people? Yeah, geologists, geology rocks, right. They have long been uh, perplexed by the effects of windstorms on the Sahara Desert on the world, right? And there was this documentary that was done, and these, NASA, these uh, astronauts were talking about one of the most significant things that you can view from space is dust storms in the Sahara Desert. And they notice that when the dust blows in the Sahara Desert, it crosses the Atlantic Ocean. It, it blows west. And as it crosses the Atlantic Ocean, the ocean begins to become fluorescent. It lights up. The majority of the dust, the however many millions of tons, I used to know, I don't now, crosses the Atlantic and settles on the Amazon basin. The reason why the ocean lights up when it crosses is because the nutrients, the dead organisms from the Sahara Desert is the exact nutrients to supply the life of phytoplankton in the ocean. It is the source of life for those fish. 
The rest of it, all the nutrients, settles on the Amazon basin floor and becomes fertilizer for the rainforest. Death migrating to life through this violent wind transports this magical interchange of nature. So if you were to interview those fish and say, hey, fish, what do you... This is, is this getting weird for anybody yet? Right? <clears throat> if you were to say, hey, fish, what is your experience with the dust storms in the Sahara Desert? The fish would respond... Dust is magic. Those windstorms are the best things going. It's the very life that I breathe is utterly dependent upon that wind. If you cut that off, I would die. And the, the fish would relish in the goodness of that windstorm. Now, when you would leave that interview with the fish and go to the interview with the nomad who is trying to carry his goods from Timbuktu, Mali, to Nouakchott, Mauritania, and finds himself hunkered down in the shelter of a sand barrier, getting pummeled by this endless stream of sand that just is destroying him and his goods, the nomad might tell you a different story. The nomad might say, I hate the wind. I hate it when the wind blows and destroys my stuff. I can't stand it. It is death to me and my family and my goods. And the fish and the nomad had different perspectives on the wind. Now, there is an overarching truth about wind. And we'll get off this philosophy of wind thing. The overarching truth about wind is that you and I and our universe as we know it cannot survive without wind. It is the way in which our universe stays cool and maintains a sense of equilibrium and moves moisture from one place to another. Weather is dictated by wind. We have to have wind to survive. So we can say that wind is good. It's a good thing. And yet, our experiences with the wind are going to be dramatically different. And I think that this is important for understanding how you and I relate to the Spirit. In the Bible, there are two words, two major words used for the Spirit, one in Hebrew and one in Greek. In the Old Testament, the word for the Spirit is ruach. Ruach. It's this really cool word that is used for a variety of different things. But anytime we see the Spirit moving throughout the Old Testament, it is this word ruach. In Genesis 1, when God created the heavens of the earth and the wind of God or the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, it's the ruach of God that is hovering over the waters. It's this violent image or this, this image of movement that is hovering over the waters. Well, also in Genesis 3, when God is walking through the Garden of Eden and through the gentle breeze of the day, it's a very different image. It's the ruach. It's the ruach, the wind, the breeze that is blowing through the garden that we get. In the Psalms, in the Psalms, especially in Psalms 33 and in Isaiah 42, the word ruach is used to describe the creator God who gives breath to his people and creates the heavens 
and humanity with the breath of his mouth, the ruach of his mouth. It's through the breath of God, the ruach of God, that the created order is made. And then one of my favorite passages in Job 19, it's the breath of Job, the bad breath of Job, the bad ruach of Job that is repulsive to his wife. Go read it. It's hilarious. It's the only passage in the Bible where it talks about somebody having bad breath and his wife can't stand it. Real life there. Um, But here in the Old Testament, we have these images, these these varying images of ruach, the breath of God, the wind of God moving. It's fierce. It's gentle. With the breath of God, he creates the world, and there's bad breath that comes out of Job's mouth. Ruach, this idea of wind, spirit, breath, is how the Hebrew community comprehended the spirit of God. When we get to the New Testament, when we read passages like this Pentecost passage, it's a different word, but it's the Greek derivative of ruach, or interpretation of that, and that's the word pneuma. We've probably heard the word pneuma before. It also means breath, wind, and spirit. But in the New Testament, pneuma is most commonly interpreted as the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God who moves throughout our world. So in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 is one of the most, uh, it, it's one of, it is the favorite passage in all the Bible for Pentecostal communities. And for those of you who don't know, Theophilus has a Pentecostal background. We are part of a denomination called Foursquare. And I think there's some inner, there's like unwritten rule that if you come from Pentecostal traditions, you have to preach on Acts chapter 2 like once a quarter, right? We preach on this thing all the time. But I don't think we get very far with the passage. I think that we cut it short. And tonight, I want to go one step further. I want to look at the why behind the why of Acts chapter 2. What is Acts chapter 2 really throwing us into? And how can that lead us to maybe having a new perspective on what the Spirit is up to in our lives and the world that we live in? Acts chapter 2 is a scene of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish holiday called the Shabbat, or the Feast of Weeks. It's one of three pilgrimage holidays in the Jewish calendar, where people would come from all over to Jerusalem to celebrate this. Now, the spiritual reason behind this festival was that it was a celebration of when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses at Sinai. So that is what this festival is celebrating, is Passover is God saved us out of slavery, and the Shabbat is God provided a law for us. So people from all over would come, and they would gather to celebrate this festival. Well, we know that Jesus had just ascended into heaven, and he gave his commission to his disciples to, to stay and wait, to stay in Jerusalem and to wait for something to happen And the Spirit of God, he promised them, the Spirit of God is going to come down and something is going to happen through you. So when we get to Acts chapter 2, towards the end of Acts chapter 1, we see that there's like roughly 120 people that are gathered in this space. We don't fully know who is all present when this Pentecost thing happens. 
But what does happen is these people are gathered and these tongues of fire start coming down. It's like this weird zombie movie type thing that is happening. People receive this, these weird tongues and everybody there from all over the world who is there starts to hear their language spoken from people who don't speak their language. This is where we typically stop when we come to the Pentecost story. We talk about this amazing almost trick that God does, this event where tongues come down, people receive this thing, and they're overtaken by it. And then we spend the, most of the, the rest of our time trying to mimic that event. How do we then surrender ourselves to this event so it can happen and we can experience it here and now, like they experienced it then? Now, there's something, I think, that lies beyond this. What actually happened in the, in the Pentecost story? Before I get to that, I want to share a little bit of, uh, remind us of an event that happened in world history when I was a little kid. On November of 1989, November 7th of 1989, what happened on November 7th of 1989? Something happened in Germany in November 7th of 1989. What? Well, good guess. The Berlin Wall. In November 7th of 1989, over two million people gathered in Berlin. Many have claimed this event, many have named this event as the greatest block party in world history. Two million people gather on this wall and they gather with their hammers and their chisels and they start pounding on the wall to break it apart. Now, if we said, if we identified with this perception of November 7th of 1989 as the greatest block party in world history, we're not necessarily identifying with something that is wrong. It was the greatest block party in world history. But what was the destruction of the Berlin Wall? Was it just a party? Was it just Something cool that happened that two million people gathered? Was it another version of Woodstock? Like, what was it? That's probably a bad example. Anyways, what was it? <clears throat> the Berlin Wall, the destruction, the crumbling, the two, two million people gathered in one place to tear this thing apart signified something that divided the world that was bringing it back together. And two million people coming to celebrate and to participate in this, this destruction of a division, bringing about unity. Several weeks ago, we talked about this icon. It's an Eastern Orthodox icon of the resurrection. And in this icon, Jesus is standing on the gates of hell and he's, that are broken, and he's reaching into the graves and he's pulling up Adam and Eve out of the grave. 
And as he's pulling up, it's signifying that Jesus is the new Adam. He's rewriting the story of Adam by pulling them out of the grave, inaugurating a new history. Hey, look it, it's up there. Man, our tech, I didn't even tell him to do that. That's all. <clears throat> right? Genesis 1 through 11 is the preface of the story of Abraham, which the story of Abraham is God's redemptive plan for humanity. And at chapter 11, we see that after Adam falls, we see the cycle of humanity falling and receiving the punishment of God. They fall at Noah, and God wipes it out, and then they fill the earth again. And then next thing you know it, we see them multiplying or congregating together, and they're using their collective pride to build a tower to the heavens. And then we see God in that moment scattering humanity that through their pride and through their ego have built this tower and now he's scattering them on the earth and confuses their languages. Jesus, the resurrected one, stands on the gates of hell, pulls Adam and Eve out of the grave, is rewriting history he tells his disciples, you stay in this upper room. You stay there until my spirit comes upon you. They stay there. And what does he do? He pours out his spirit on his people. And the world that has been divided, who's who can't communicate to one another, he's rewriting their story. And the spirit speaks through them and they begin to hear languages. And you see the spirit on the move taking his scattered people and bringing them together, rounding them up through the power of his spirit. Now, a, a word on this, a word of caution on this. This is just a little side note. Some will take interpretations like this to be, well, you see... Culture and language is the byproduct of the fall. And so the way forward is to have this sense of hegemony where there's one rulership, one language, one culture, one people, and God is not a fan of culture and language. There's plenty of wrong with that. We're not going to go into that in detail. This is not what we're talking about. If you notice, everyone hears language spoken in their own language. God is meeting us where we are at and the Spirit is moving to speak in our own language. In Revelation 7, we have this image of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne in all of its diversity in one voice declaring its praises to God. God is all about unity amidst our diversity. But Pentecost is a story of God rewriting that history through the power of the Spirit, breathing out the spirit of unity over his people and drawing his people together into one accord. I started to look at the major points of Scripture where God talks about the gifts of the Spirit and the Spirit moving. There's three really famous ones, four, this one, and then there's 1 Corinthians 12, there's Romans 8, and there's Ephesians 4. And we use these to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. Every single one of those passages has to do with the unity of the body. The Spirit is about unity. That is the passion of the Spirit. That is the movement of the Spirit. That is the impulse of the Spirit 
as the Spirit moves throughout his creation. And that is what the Spirit invites us into. Now, in this room, this conversations around the Holy Spirit touches on a chord for many of us, maybe not all of us. I'm going to propose that there's probably four primary camps that we fall into as a community surrounding our relationship to the wind of God, the Spirit of God. Some of you find yourself in a place where the movement of the Spirit, the Spirit in your life has utterly transformed you. You are the fish in the sea, and the Spirit is nothing but nutrient goods to you. You just eat it up, and you can't get any more of it. And if you could, you would get out of that water, and you would go into that desert, and you would tell that nomad how dang good that Spirit is, and invite him to dive into the oceans with you to experience and relish in the goodness of the Spirit. Then there's those of us who believe the Spirit is real, but can't point to any specific ways that maybe we see the Spirit moving in our life or our communities. We're cautiously skeptical, but not necessarily cynical toward these ecstatic expressions of the Spirit, especially when it comes from the weird televangelists who are doing like pushing people over and and doing crazy stuff. We kind of find ourselves in this middle ground. And then there's some of us who for some reason, whether it's our theological background or our experience with the church, maybe in youth group when you tried to get pushed over and you didn't want to get pushed over, or told that something was wrong with you if you weren't speaking in tongues and you felt like you were faking it. And so through your experiences, it's made it challenging and in some cases maybe even impossible in situations of spiritual abuse to trust and believe people who claim God actively does things in our world like physical healings and speaking in tongues and all of those things. Then there's a fourth group that is sitting here and is like, y'all are crazy. (laughs) What is this mess? Well, this is a community of faith that orients itself among the confession that says, we believe in the Holy Spirit. So we love you. You're welcome here at these tables. But we're going to address the first three. I think so much time, and I've witnessed this in my 12 years as a pastor, where so much of our time and energy around the Spirit is occupied by this internal or passive-aggressive battle between the polarities. You have folks on this side who are saying like, oh, if only the cynic could just embrace the power of the Spirit. If only those people who who have never seen miracles or have never or who have a disdain for them or or some reason in their life they just are resistant toward it if they could come to this camp and experience the spirit like I can experience it then they would be set free and then folks over on this camp is like I have seen the power and the leverage that the Spirit has given to humanity to control and manipulate people. And I've experienced that firsthand. And I want to distance myself from that. I do not want to participate in that. And for that reason, ecstatic expressions of the faith crawls under my skin. I'm the nomad in the desert, and it 
I, I want to believe that it's good. Maybe I do believe that it's good. But man, it feels not good. It feels really not good. And then there's those of us in the middle who are like, let me get out of the way. And we tiptoe back here and we remain passively neutral and say, I don't really know what to believe. I don't know how to feel. And in the midst of arguing about, is the spirit moving in your life? Did you experience tongues? Did you experience healing? Did you experience all these things, which all individually are really good things? Sometimes we can sidestep the movement and the impulse and the drive of the spirit, which is the spirit of unity that wants to take his people and draw them in together and to breathe on them. Some in forceful, powerful ways and some in the gentle, calm spirit that God moves through the wilderness. May we be a a people defined by patience that has the ability to see that that is what God is up to in our world. One of my favorite lines from that, that movie of Wendell Berry's, he talks about, somebody asked him a question, how do we make sense of, or how do we, how do we fix the mess that we've made on the ecological level? How do we fix the mess of our world? And he says, you don't. You don't fix it. What you do is you find one thing that's broken and you put it back together. I think that that is what the Spirit is up to in our lives. The Spirit is hovering over us. And the Spirit is in the work of taking things that are broken and putting them back together. Whether that's our individual, our emotional lives, broken relationships, the healing of our planet, taking things, that's the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit is hovering and moving and doing this work, and you and I have to catch up and have the eyes to see how the Spirit is moving so that we can participate in that. We all have areas of our lives that are broken, whether that's personally, whether that's emotionally, whether that's relationally. We participate in a broken world, ecologically, politically. And you and I are invited into a relationship with the Spirit that is moving through all those broken spaces and putting them back together. And that is the work of the Spirit among us. I think that we will find that as we identify or as we root ourselves in a God, a Spirit of unity, that we will see the fruit of the Spirit emerge in our lives and in our community, where hate gets replaced with love, sorrow is replaced with joy, violence is dethroned by peace, angst takes a back seat to patience, meanness surrenders to kindness, greed is uprooted by goodness, abrasiveness crumbles amidst gentleness, and recklessness collapses to self-control. I think that is what God would have for us as a community. 
What I love about this space so much, and we have said this from day one, we want to be a place where Democrats and Republicans and, and Pentecostals and skeptics and all of these people can sit at the same table. And guys, we have a real opportunity to be that as a community. We really do. We are that to a lot of degrees as a community. And we have an opportunity to breathe that life and that goodness on our neighbors, our families, our city. And I'm excited to see what the byproduct of that could be. Tonight, I wanna offer three responses, three varying responses for people in our community at varying levels. And if none of these apply to you, just sit back and enjoy the Eucharist like we do every week. The first response, if you feel like past experience or cynicism has made you unable to see or experience the movement of the Spirit in our world or in your own life, and you would like to experience release from that, there's going to be Christy and Andy, two of our elders up here at the front with oil. I'm going to invite you to come to them and in a posture of surrender to lift your hands up in front of them, and they're going to bless you and pray a blessing of release in the Spirit over your life to be released from the chains that have you enslaved to cynicism. If you feel like, for another group, if you feel like you are living in contention with someone in your life, or you have been a part of a broken relationship, and it is within your control to make amends in that relationship, I want to invite you this evening to pursue making an amends with broken relationships in your life, to seek that out. If you find yourself in a situation where, because of the nature of abuse or anything like that, where either you reaching out, whether you're the perpetrator or you were abused in some way, where making an amends is not something that is healthy for you or somebody else, then I want to invite you forward to receive a blessing to break the chains of broken relationship in our lives. When you can come up to Andy or Christy, I want you to put your hands together like this, signifying a place of bondage. And they're going to pray a blessing over your wrists and your head and move your hands apart to signify a breaking of those, that bondage and restoring you to right relationship with people in your life. And if you're in a third camp, if you find yourself unable to accept the pain of other people in this room or outside that might not share the same lavishness of your relationship with the Spirit, and you find yourself discontent with a spiritual community until it conforms to your experience with the Spirit, I invite you to come to the elders, and I want you to reach out, and I want you to grab their hand. And when you grab your hand, that's going to signify them to pray a spirit of blessing of unity for you, to be joined back together with your brother and sisters in Christ, who might experience the wind very differently than you do and give you the spirit of patience to endure life together with them and, and to be shaped by that. This signifies being unified with your brethren here in this community. Those are the three responses I want to invite you into this evening when we come up to the Eucharist. Christy and Andy will be up here at the altar. You can come to them at any time. 
We're going to come to the table together now. If you're serving communion or leading worship, you can make your way up. This is the table that has been prepared for us by Jesus and through the sacrifice that he made on the cross. All are welcome who pursue the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus to come to this table. There's gluten-free elements at all three stations. Come to the table. As we close this evening, my prayer for all of us is the Spirit will be present in our lives this week in a new way. God knows that kind of newness that you need, and all we have to do is be open to the Spirit's presence in our life. And so I pray for an openness to the Spirit and to the presence of the Spirit in our life in a new way, whatever that should look like. As we go, may we go with the peace and the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Go in peace. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.